Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, my name's Justin, and I have the opportunity to fill in for Trey tonight. And a few weeks ago, when Trey had approached me about teaching tonight's message, uh, I was really struggling with what I should talk about. Because the Bible's a thick book. I mean, it's 1,189 chapters. It's 66 books written by over 30 authors over a 4,000-year span. And we have about 30 minutes. So that's a lot of ground to cover. And I was wrestling with, you know, is there a book that we should pick? Is there a story that I feel would be good for us to talk about? But it was actually a conversation that our core group had two weeks ago that was just so interesting and refreshing that I thought it would be perfect to talk about as a church. So let's take a look at the screen behind me because tonight we're going to be talking about atonement and why we as believers should have a more complete understanding of what it means. Now, if you've been a follower of Jesus for any amount of time, uh, you'll quickly find that there's some vocab that comes with the relationship. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been in church listening to a sermon or the pastor is uh, preaching, and he's using words that never really seem to appear in day-to-day conversation. Words like justification, sanctification, holiness, discipleship, and covenants. They don't just seem to pop up when you're having a chat with a buddy. And if they do, you're probably talking with another believer. What's important to remember, though, is that these words all mean something. And each one tells us something different about who God is and what he cares about. And I believe that if we take the time to slow down and examine what these words mean, Our relationship with God will surely deepen, and we'll have a greater appreciation for who Jesus is. So with that, we're going to dive in. You guys with me? Yeah? Yeah? All right. Great. Uh, For those of you who are note takers, here's your first chance. Atonement is at the center of God's answer to our sin and rebellion. Atonement is at the center for God's answer to our sin and rebellion. It truly is one of the chief ways that God has decided in his sovereign wisdom to deal with the rebellion of humankind. For those of you who are not note-takers, raise your hands, please. And you better be raising your hands because you know what you're not doing right now? Taking notes. (laughs) Don't worry, because I've actually brought an illustration tonight that will hopefully get a good grasp on what we're going to be talking about. So, for tonight's purposes, and I hope that you can see this, if you can't, uh, then I don't know what to tell you. Uh, That's what you get for sitting in the back. I don't know. Um, For tonight's purposes, this jar of dirt is going to represent something. It's going to represent our sin. Now, to be fair, we could spend a whole other sermon talking about what the word sin means, 
Uh, but in short, uh, it's, really, its definition really isn't that religious at all. It's one that we throw around a lot in Christian circles. But the definition of sin, it means to fail or to miss the goal. Uh, I have what the Hebrew word is up on the screen. Uh, it's pronounced hata. And the Greek word, which is used in the New Testament, uh, is harmarita. So, for example, if you're part of the disc golf community, or you like to play golf, or let's say you played a sport in high school that involves some sort of hand-eye coordination, um, anytime you walk up to take your putt or shoot your shot, and you miss, you failed. And it's, it's nothing personal, it's, it's simply a fact. You failed to hit your, your shot. And interestingly, throughout the Bible, there's times where the word sin, hata, is used, and it's not really refer. we don't use it, it's not used in the normal way that we think of it. For instance, in the book of Judges, uh, the same word, hata, is used when describing a group of elite archers who were said to be so accurate that they would never miss their target whenever they took a shot. However, most of the time, when we see this word sin in scripture, uh, it's used to describe our standing with our creator. Because when we sin, we fail to hit the standard of perfection that God asks us to uphold. And this goes all the way back to the garden when humanity chose to seize control and try and define what's right and what's wrong. And as Christians, it's no surprise that our standard, the goal that we strive for and aim for every day, was established by Jesus and the perfect life that he lived. We always strive to be more like him, and in truth, we'll always fall short. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So the question is, why does this issue of sin really matter so much? Well, the problem with sin is what it causes, because sin causes separation with God. The God who made us and who created this world is holy. He's blameless and pure. But when we sin, we are broken and impure. And we can't, we're, we can't be in his presence because of how holy he is. And unless there's something to bridge that gap, we'll forever be separated from God. And so it's not just, you know, let's try and do good things because that's what God told us to do. It's really more, my failure causes separation from God. And I don't have the power or the ability within myself to bridge that gap. And I desperately need help with this. And truthfully, it doesn't do any good to compare ourselves to other people. Because no matter how hard we try to look like we have it all together... We're all in the same boat here. We cannot escape our failure. And we can't be righteous in our own strength. And it's with this in mind that the Bible poses the question, what's God going to do about our sin? What's going to happen with the dirt? Will it ever get cleaned up? Is there a way to get rid of it? Can I just ignore it? Welcome to the concept of atonement. So let's take a look. 
The Hebrew word from which we get the English word atonement is, anyone want to take a stab on how to pronounce that uh, word that starts with the K up there? Kaf what? what? Kafar. Kafar. Actually, that's exactly it. It's kind of like Jafar from Aladdin, but with a K. Um, and what it means is to cover over something. So for example, when God gives Noah instructions on how to build the ark in Genesis chapter 6, he says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and kafar it inside and out with pitch. So to help with our illustration, uh, I brought this cloth. And the idea is that if this jar of dirt is our sin, then covering over the jar would be atoning for the dirt, which I, I don't think that's super complicated. We're not going to spend a whole a lot of time here because I think that's pretty straightforward. So we're going to take this a step further because Let's be clear, the dirt is still here. We can clearly see that something is underneath this cloth. It hasn't moved, it hasn't changed. It's just you can't see it right now. Does anyone have roommates or significant others who take a atonement approach to cleaning the house or your apartment? I mean, you can raise your hands at your own risk, but I mean, Haley, I, I know that sometimes I do that. And as a kid, you know, you're pushing stuff under the bed. You can't see it, but it's still there. Let's say that, uh, that you and me, we, we go out to lunch. And we have a wonderful conversation. Uh, it's great. But when it comes time to leave, and we have to get back to whatever it was we're doing, whether you came from work or you just have a day off, we go to leave, uh, and the check comes. And I go to reach for my wallet, but in a moment of panic, I realize that I, I don't have it, it's not there. I, I mean, I pack down my pockets, I, I look you know, around, and, and I can't find my wallet. Let me ask you, in this situation, have I failed? Yes. Now, is it the worst failure that could happen? No. But I did fail to bring money to pay for my food. Now, you being you, you're a very nice person. And you don't freak out about me forgetting my money. And you look at me and you say, Justin, it's okay. Don't worry about it. I forgive you. It's going to be fine. Well, eventually the waiter's going to come to our table with the check. And you, being my friend, you look at him and you say, you know, sir, uh, my friend here, uh, he's a little bit spacey. He didn't bring his wallet today. Uh, and he doesn't have the money to pay for his food. But don't worry about it because I forgave him, so everything's going to be fine. The waiter's going to look at you, and uh, he, I don't know what expression he'll have on his face, but he'll probably say, you must be a very nice person. Here's the check. Who's going to pay for the food? Because part of forgiveness is absorbing the cost of something. You can say that you forgive me, but unless you take the debt that I owe, it can't be overlooked. Someone has to pay the check. Now, if that happened once, it probably wouldn't be you know, a huge deal. It'd be unfortunate, but you might joke with your friends about it. But it, it wouldn't be that huge of a deal. But let's say that we go out to lunch every day for a whole month. 
And every single time that we go out to lunch, I forget to bring my wallet. How do you think that's going to affect our relationship? Do you think that on month two, you're going to want to keep on going out to lunch with me? No. Because if someone doesn't help me out, then I'm going to be responsible for cleaning up my own dirt. And in the words of Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's going to cost me my life. And if the story ends here, then we'd all go home very sad. But let's watch and see what God has planned. So if you have your Bibles with you, then I would invite you to turn to your favorite book of the Bible, uh, Leviticus. <clears throat> yeah, you, you heard me. Uh, flip on over to chapter 16. Uh, now, unfortunately, I do not have this, the scriptures up on the screen, so you will have to be reading uh, on your phone, on your Bible, whatever you need. Once you get to Leviticus, uh, take a look at the screen, because it's actually a really interesting book. The book of Leviticus is all about God's plan on how to handle our sin. And you'll notice that the book is perfectly symmetrical. Uh, the picture on the screen, by the way, is from the Bible Project. They did a video on the book of Leviticus. And I would encourage you on your own free time, uh, check it out. It's an awesome video. Uh, but really what, what happens is there's three systems that God establishes in the book. You have sacrificial laws, rules for the priests, and purity laws. And in chapters 1 through 7, and then at the end of the book, in chapters 23 through 27, you're going to read about all the different kinds of sacrifices and offerings that the Israelites would have to make to God at the tabernacle. Then, in chapters 8 through 10, and on the other side, chapter, 20's, chapter 21 through 22, you're going to learn about the priesthood and the rules that the priests had to follow. And then towards the middle, in chapters 11 through 15, and then 18 through 20, uh, we read rules about how the people, the Israelites, were supposed to interact with each other and live in a pure and right way. But what we came here for tonight is chapters 16 and 17, which are right in the middle of the book. And it's here that you'll find that everything ties together. Because chapters 16 and 17 are about something called the Day of Atonement which is a yearly event. So we're going to begin our reading in verse 15, and then after the reading, we're going to unpack the verses and talk about what's going on. So, uh, verse 15. Then he shall sacrifice the goat. Oh, and I'll mention before we get, get started. Uh, this really is the tale of two goats. So keep an eye out as we're reading. See if you can spot them. You're looking for two goats here. They will be important later. Verse 15. Then he shall sacrifice the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. 
and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the atoning cover and in front of the atoning cover. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel, because of their unlawful acts regarding all their sins. And he shall do so for the tent of meeting, which remains with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, so that he may make atonement for himself, for his household, and for all the assembly of Israel. Verse 18. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood from the bull and some of the blood from the goat and put it on the horns of the altar on all sides. With his fingers he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the impurities of the sons of Israel. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay, shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wrongdoings of the sons of Israel and their unlawful acts regarding all their sin. And he shall place them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands ready. Then the goat shall carry on itself all their wrongdoings into an isolated territory where he shall be released into the wilderness. Go ahead and jump on down to verse 30 because this is where it really sums up what's going on here. For it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you, and you will be clean from all your sins before the Lord. What an interesting couple of verses. I mean, I don't know the last time that I read this before I started practicing, you know, preparing for tonight's sermon, and it's probably not something that you're going to just choose to read when you're doing your devotionals. But let's, uh, let's take a minute and unpack and unpack what's really going on here. You see, by the time we get to Leviticus, Israel's a big tribe. Uh, and odds are that there are a lot of sin, there's a lot of sin happening that goes unnoticed and that the people aren't really dealing with. So, once a year, the priest, in this case Aaron, would take two goats. Now, the one of those goats, the first one, the goat who you read about in verses 15 through 19 is killed and its blood is carried into the presence of God where it symbolically covers and atones for Israel's sin. Which again is, is kind of weird to us, uh, but the meaning of the sacrifice is actually explained in chapter 17, uh, the next chapter, where God says that the blood of the creature, a blood, the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sins so that the people don't have to. Which leaves us with the second goat, which is found in verse 20. Now for this one, the priest is supposed to put his hands on it and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat, 
gets cast out forever into the wilderness, which is actually where we get the term scapegoat. Um, and it's a very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin. The sacrifice which the high priest offers covers Israel's sin, and God chooses to turn his wrath away from the people. But there's still a problem. I mean, this is great, but the system of atonement, which starts in Leviticus and will continue throughout the rest of the Old Testament, was only a temporary solution for our evil and sin. Because evil still persisted how many sacrifices were made. The dirt from our illustration is still here. It hasn't gone away. The Old, Testament, the Old Testament sacrifices fell short of permanently paying for man's sin. The payment was past due, but God was allowing the bill to be pushed back and back, but it still hadn't been fully paid. Because even though God showed his mercy to his people time and time again, they still chose to rebel. Brothers turned on brothers. Husbands were unfaithful to their families. Priests become corrupt. And kings mistreat their citizens. Speaking on this very issue, Isaiah writes to the nation of Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, saying that their sacrifices have become meaningless. In verse 11 he says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings and of the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. What God is saying here is, you missed the point, guys. These sacrifices are not just supposed to be a ritual and nothing else. These sacrifices are supposed to inspire and, and cultivate a heart that is broken over your sin, a heart that wants to love your neighbor and worship God. You missed the point. But Isaiah looks forward to a day when a king, a Messiah, would come and deal with our sin in a unique way that no one saw coming. The king that Isaiah prophesied about was Jesus. So let's jump into the New Testament and read about how Jesus is the completion of this whole idea. Jump on with me over to the book of 1 John. Uh, not the Gospel of John, the book of 1 John. It's towards the end, it's like, you go back, Revelation, Jude, books of Peter, John. Huh? No. Yeah, it's there. You'll find it. And if you can't, there's a table of contents. Cable, table contents, which no shame in using that. It's a really small book too, so you might flip past it. Once you're there, uh, we're going to start our reading in verse 5, chapter 1, and we're going to end our reading uh, in chapter 2, verse 2. Go ahead and uh, read along with me, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. And the hymn in verse 5 is, is Jesus. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie 
and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim to have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Starting in chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate for the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice. Now, some of your translations may say uh, propitiation, which means atoning sacrifice. Uh, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But not only our sins, but also the sins of the whole world. Now, the book of 1 John is, interestingly, it's not a letter. Uh, it's actually a sermon. Uh, it's one of the earliest sermons that we have in the New Testament. And this sermon is beautifully simple to read. But it's one of these situations where the words are simple, but there's a whole universe of depth beneath them. And honestly, there's a lot of things that we could explore here. But there's something that John repeats three times that you may have noticed. Three times, John repeats something about the effect that Jesus' death had regarding our sin. Those fall in verse 7, verse 9, and chapter 2, verse 2. In, in verse 7, it says, The blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. In verse 9, it says, He will forgive us and purify us from all sin. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, it says, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This, is, this kind of language directly relates to the same language that's being used in Leviticus chapter 16, the same language that's used to talk about the goats. And not only here, but all over the New Testament, we hear how the death of Jesus was an atonement for our sins, covering the debt that we humans owe God. He became the perfect sacrifice, and through his death, he purified and sanctified the world. We were the ones who brought about all the evil and death in the world, but now Christ's blood washes away the damage and the pain that my sin has caused. But the story doesn't end there, because Jesus not only died for my sins, but he rose from the dead and now continually offers himself to anyone who accepts it. His death did not just cover my sin. Jesus' death on the cross removed and paid for my sins. His death didn't just cover my sins. Jesus' death on the cross removed and paid for my sins. Coming back to our illustration, 
If this represents our sin, then this is what Jesus' sacrifice would be like. You see, the dirt's gone. It's not there anymore. It's not obnoxiously sitting on this stand just for everyone to look at. When Jesus said it's finished as he hung on the cross, bleeding out, gasping for air that was slipping away, what he was saying was, is that's it. Your debt's been paid. Jesus' death on the cross was a one-size-fits-all sacrifice, which is sufficient payment for all our sins. Past sins, present sins, and any sins that I commit in the future have been written to the checking account of my Savior. As I close out, I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. But let's pay attention because there's something that's really interesting that I want us to think about. Because the sacrifice of Jesus, he's, he's the perfect sacrifice because of his sacrifice, sorry. The ritual of animal sacrifices is no longer required. And just as a tip, if you go to a church and the pastor is making sacrifices, animal sacrifices, then get out of there as quickly as you can. <laughs> and even though we're no longer required to make sacrifices like they did in the Old Testament, Jesus does ask us to participate in new rituals, which remind us of what he's done for us. And these two rituals are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, the first is baptism, because like Jesus, who was lowered down into the grave and rose again anew, Christians are lowered down into the water and rise up out of it, symbolically a new person. It's this, in this way, baptism connects us to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as a public declaration to the world that we are now giving up our lives to follow after him. And the second ritual that Christ instituted is the Lord's Supper, which we here at Contrast take every week. It's a reenactment of Jesus' Last Supper with his disciples in the upper room, which allows Christians to remember that the sacrifice that Jesus made on their behalf when they take the bread in the cup. So tonight, if you're a disciple of Christ and you've received Jesus' payment for your sins, then I invite you to partake of the bread and cup with us tonight. And every time that we do this, I want us to really just pause and slow down and really reflect on what Jesus did on that cross. I want us to think about atonement and his payment for our debt. And I want us to thank him again and again for his grace in our life and the love that he has for us. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.